millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let us think about tomorrow, not yesterday, and what happened. I will work on a brilliant tomorrow and a beautiful future for the sake of my people. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Last week, Somali lawmakers voted in a new president, Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud. We just heard part of his speech on taking office. Hassan Sheikh defeated the incumbent, Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, better known as President Farmajo. He's also the first Somali to hold the presidency twice. He was actually president before Farmajo. The build-up to this year's vote had been long and fraught, with repeated delays and, on occasion, rival armed factions clashing in the streets of the capital Mogadishu. In the end, though, it was a smooth transfer of power. Farmajo conceded and handed over power peacefully. A Somalia at peace with itself and the world. That is what the East African nation's new president, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, says he wants for his country. He now has a lot of serious issues on his plate, including a devastating drought, soaring inflation, deep political grievances, and of course the fight against al-Shabaab insurgents who have been trying to overthrow the government there for more than a decade. So can a new president bring a new approach to Somalia's many daunting challenges? What prospects are there that Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud takes a fresh look at the long-running war with the Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, a grinding stalemate that shows little sign of ending anytime soon? To talk about all this, I'm delighted to welcome on Omar Mahmoud, who's Crisis Group's Somalia expert. Omar, welcome back on. Uh, happy to be here, Richard. So, Omar, why don't we start? Uh, I mean, this seemed like a, a remarkably smooth handover of power, despite all the disputes and the friction beforehand. Do you want to just talk about what happened? Yeah, I mean, in the end, I think we basically got the best case scenario out out of this. You know, Somalia does have a history of really contested sort of electoral dynamics or manipulated electoral dynamics, but preserving this rotation of power at the highest level. And, and that was preserved this time around, but there was no guarantee of that. It, it really did look bleak for quite some time. I, I think it was essentially a process of continuing to push ahead. And with each step, 
that was passed, it made it difficult to basically reverse that progress. Uh, because these elections, you know, are, are essentially, you know, a month-long drawn-out process. And there was probably a turning point last December where there was another one of these flare-ups between the president and the prime minister, so President Farmajo and, and Prime Minister Roble. And I think there was a wider consensus after that that the way out was really to conclude this electoral cycle. And, and so we saw the parliamentary selection process really pick up in January and February, and especially once then you had the speakers of both houses of parliament selected, uh, basically you got to the point of, of no return, essentially. Um, but that's not to say that the election was very well run. You know, I think there was many issues in terms of the level of, of uh, manipulation or basically pre-rigging within the parliamentary process itself. But we did get to the point at least where this, this transfer of power was preserved. And just so, so people understand, I mean, just explain the, the Somali election system. So there's indirect elections. Essentially, you know, you have two houses of parliament. The, the upper house, uh, the candidates are selected by federal member state presidents and their, their assemblies vote on them. And that's because the upper house represents the federal member states. The federal member states are uh, Somalia's regions, right? Exactly. Basically, the, the building blocks in, in the Somali system. Um, then you have the lower house, which each seat is, is assigned essentially to a certain subclan. And so this is where the process gets a little complicated, but you essentially have a group of elders and, and civil society members from that subclan who select, in this case, 101 representatives from their clan. And that grouping of 101 then decides uh, who the parliament member for that seat will be. Um, so, so basically, it's kind of a, a multi-step process. So basically, then both those houses combined for the presidential election, and that's what we saw last Sunday. So how are the 101 people for each clan chosen? So there's uh, basically a set of clan elders, which people can agree on that this is the, the elder for this clan, and then some civil society members, so respected members within that clan uh, that might not be particularly elders. And so there's a grouping of a couple of those, and, and they wind up selecting this group of 101 delegates that wind up selecting the parliament member. So President Farmajo himself, sort of in the build-up to elections, I mean, it had, been, it had seemed fairly clear that incumbent presidents in Somalia tend not to win re-election, but it had been fairly clear that Farmajo himself hoped to hold on to power, and yet he sort of conceded his defeat and handed over? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think there's a strong incumbency disadvantage in, in Somalia, actually, um, especially maybe playing into the indirect system, but because there's such um, a wide swath of, of actors um, to sort of satisfy each time around, it becomes very difficult, even when you've been in power for a while, to guarantee that same um, level of support uh, coming for your re-election. You know, it says something about the level of, of, of power and relationships in Somalia and how dispersed they really are. Um, but of course, incumbents try. Farmajo tried himself uh, for, for his re-election, and there were some concerns. We got a lot of worried uh, sort of uh, reporting within the region about what might happen if, if there isn't some acceptance at some level. But I think basically by the time you get to the presidential election, because there's been so much buildup before that, you know, this is a months-long sort of process, 
by the time you get to that final event, uh, which is a very confined event, which is, you know, televised, all the Somali political elite are there. I think it's very difficult to have any sort of contestation of, of that, you know, once you've got into that process. Tell us a little bit about uh, the new president, uh, Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud, uh, what is the second time in, in, in power. So he was in office before, before Farmajo. Exactly, before Farmajo. Essentially, I mean, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because you do actually have a new president in Somalia, but one that's been there before, which is unprecedented, uh, especially because of this incumbency disadvantage. It's very hard for presidents to kind of come back into power. But perhaps less so for former presidents. Well, that's what Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud has proved now, that former presidents do, do have a route. Um, and interestingly enough, basically the same two squared off in the last, uh, in 2017, the, the final two standing were Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud and Farmacho. Same thing in, in 2022 here, just with a different result. As of, uh, you know, Hassan Sheikh himself, uh, I mean, he is a Hawiye from one of the bigger clan families. You know, he, he did serve as a Somali president, so I think we know more about him. And he's really uh, becoming a dominant force in, in, in Somali politics. You know, served as president for four years, one of the main leaders in, in the opposition the past five years, and, and now president uh, again. And I, I think part of what he was able to play off of this time in, in the past few years is, is he's positioned himself as a reconciler. Um, this was very clear in, in his campaign the slogan of a Somalia at peace with itself and abroad, and then this idea of a no retaliation policy, you know, regardless of, of, of outcome. Um, and, and so that's kind of, you know, he, he's basically struck a chord um, within, you know, the Somali political elite that has been more polarized and, and divided over the past uh, couple of years. But I think, you know, he's playing off this idea that he can be this sort of healing factor that Somalia needs right now. We'll have to see how kind of that unfolds. But um, during this previous track record, you know, there was, I, I'd say, a degree more of, of consultation than the sort of combativeness we saw in, in the most recent administration. And Omar, of the uh, upper and lower house members that voted in the election, quite a large majority voted in the end for Hassan Sheikh? Yeah, essentially, there's three rounds of the presidential election. Um, so in the first round, the top four vote-getters go on to a second round. In the second round, the top two go into the third round. And so Hassan Sheikh in the first round actually was not the lead vote-getter. Um, I think he was third after the leader of Puntland side, Denny, who was also running for president, and Farmajo himself. Um, but basically... To emerge as president, you have to pick up the votes of candidates that have fallen along the way. And that's what Hassan Sheikh did quite well. And, and so after the first round, there was a couple um, candidates who, who did not advance and, and they came out publicly and endorsed him. After the second round, again, Saeed Denny, after he didn't emerge, he endorsed him for the third round. So Hassan Sheikh essentially quadrupled his vote total from the first round to the third round. While on the Farmajo side, we saw him barely double his. And a lot of this came to this idea that for the opposition, you know, I think they had two plans here. You know, one was a plan A that each of them would run for presidency. Uh, but because of the, the sort of round system, their plan B was anyone but Farmajo. And we saw that consolidation around Hassan Sheikh as, as the vote progressed. So he seems to have sort of quite a lot of backing, as you say, among uh, Somalia's political elite. What are you expecting to be his immediate priorities? 
reconciliation is a big one. Um, you know, that's one, the reflection of uh, a more polarized political environment. Uh, but two, more practically, this means resetting the relationship between the federal government and, and the member states. That relationship is really fractured over the past couple of years. You know, one thing Farmajo focused on was centralizing a bit more power around the federal government itself, and that spurred a predictable backlash. And so I think that's been one one thing he's, he's going to focus on is, is kind of resetting that relationship. You know, I, I would say we need to take that even a step further, because if you look within the federal member states themselves, there's also very significant fractures. A member state like Jubaland, for example, the, the Jubaland administration in Kismayo is, is very distant now from from the ghetto region in the north of, of Jubaland. And, and you see similar fractures in, in some of the other ones. So I think reconciliation is going to be a big one. Uh, but beyond the, the federal government, federal member state frame, go going you know, a, a level deeper as well. Um, there's some other sort of key state building tasks that are outstanding that, that I think he'll focus on. You know, one is basically the, the next electoral model. One is the constitution in Somalia is still provisional. It hasn't been finalized. There's some outstanding areas that require political agreement uh, around that. Um, at the same time, economically, Somalia has been going through this debt relief process with the international financial institutions. Um, but the big one, of course, will also be security. And he inherits a withdrawal plan for the African Union peacekeeping forces that was just negotiated um, you know, a couple months before this election. So one kind of drawdown that we see happening on the international side, but of course, you know, the, the fight against al-Shabaab itself. So I think those would be the main priorities. The other thing I would just mention is that there is a, a dire humanitarian situation on, ongoing right now in Somalia with a, a severe drought that has the potential in some areas to basically become a famine for the rains at the end of this year. Also, the initial forecasts haven't been that promising. So it's both about responding to that in the immediate term, but also about how to kind of get out from under this cycle or some prevention measures going forward. And as you say, uh, Omar, we'll come to the uh, struggle against al-Shabaab uh, in a moment. But could we just talk a little bit about the deterioration of relations between Mogadishu and some federal states over the past few years? I mean, traditionally, that's been a relationship where, you know, the, it's been defined even before Farmaggio by disagreement between Mogadishu and, and, and member states. But in some cases, it was a relationship that deteriorated dramatically under, under Farmaggio. Do you want to sort of talk a little bit about sort of what that looked like in different parts of the country? Sure. And I mean, that's a key point to make right off the bat, that this relationship was problematic even before the Farmaggio period, which is basically the Hassan Sheikh period. Uh, you know, we saw him oversee the institutionalization of, of a couple of federal member states, basically the establishment of them. Um, but that relationship was also still never uh, completely smooth. Now, under Farmajo, I, I think, you know, his view was that member states really actually just have to have too much power. And he, he sought about rebalancing that relationship. And in some ways, you know, parts of that analysis make sense. But the way he went about it was quite destabilizing and quite polarizing. Um, and, and so one of the big aspects was federal government interference in regional member state elections. And he was able to ensure that allies of his came out on top of three of the member state elections, while the two he wasn't able to, to influence as much wound up consequently 
being the two member states most most uh, consistently opposed to him and formed a, a basically a solid block there. Um, and, and so this relationship fractured quite, quite strongly. You know, it became very politicized. Um, the security forces were used in, 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 in some cases to basically force the federal government's way into some of the member states as well. In which of the member states were relations particularly fraught? So they were particularly fraught with Puntland and Jubaland, as those were the areas where federal government influence over the elections was, was quite weak. And rather in, in Galmudug, um, southwest and Hirshabele, that's areas where the federal government had more influence. And so if you think then of what that means, you have now Hassan Sheikh come in, is that then sort of reversed? So those governments, those leaders in the federal member states, in the regions with whom Farmaggio had fraught relations, so Puntland in the north, Jubaland in the south, they now have better relations with, with the government and the three you mentioned where Farmaggio managed to install allies, Kalmadug, uh, Southwest, uh, Hirshabele, you know, they're now going to have to adapt to a new reality, a new government in, in Mogadishu. I and mean, how do you see that uh, playing out? Well, I think it's complicated. And that's where Hassan Sheikh's sort of no retaliation policy is quite important here. Um, because basically, yes, you had some of those leaders, particularly in, in, in maybe a Galmudug and also Southwest, that were quite close to Farmaggio uh, up until the uh, very end. Um, but if Hassan Sheikh then comes down kind of with the same policy of kind of replacing leadership, you know, that's bound to spark some sort of clashes. Rather, what he said is he's going to work with who's there. Uh, let's see how that plays out in practice. At the same time, the sort of alliance nominally with, with Jubaland, Puntland, and then also the, the opposition, which, which Hassan Sheikh was in at that time, was also one more of convenience than anything else. It was sort of an anti-Farmaggio coalition. And of course, you know, we saw even Hassan Sheikh and, and Denny were, were opponents in this political race for presidency. They were opponents in the first round of voting who then united to oust Farmaggio in essence. Exactly. So there's still, you know, um, a dynamic that this was an alliance of convenience against Farmaggio. And now that Farmaggio is not there, you know, does that alliance continue as well? Omar, just a little bit more. So in, in these three federal states where Farmaggio managed to get his own allies into power, how are they going to be looking to position themselves with Hassan Sheikh? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the reality is now that there's been a, a change of leadership in, in Mogadishu and they'll have to balance that. So take Ahmed uh, Korkor in Galmadog, for example. Um, he was he was quite close to Farmaggio, uh, you know, basically served a lot of his interests, not just even in Galmadog, but also at the national level as well. So a leader like Korkor, he always had this challenge to balance the alliance with Farmaggio with also um, interests on the ground within Galmadug. And Galmaduk is quite complicated in itself, given that, um, you know, Hassan Sheikh also, you know, his clan uh, family comes from that area. And, and, and so I think, you know, for a leader like Korkor, the reality is that the political situation in, in Mogadishu has changed, uh, that he will have to adjust to that as well. And so some pretty big potential changes in Somali politics, uh, depending a bit, as you say, Omar, on what Hassan Sheikh means by reconciliation, but also some potentially big changes in Somali's foreign relations. I mean, if we look first at the region, at the at the Horn, so Farmaggio had emphasised his uh, tripartite relationship, so with Ethiopia, with Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, with, with Eritrea, 
President uh, Isaias uh, Afwerki. And that was very much to the detriment of Somalia's relationship with, with Kenya, uh, with other Horn of Africa governments. Is that something that Hassan Sheikh is also going to walk back? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I think the wider point on on the regional relationship will be, I would, I would expect a bit more balance. It was very much a bifurcated foreign policy under Farmaggio. And, and so, yes, he played into this tripartite dynamic with Ethiopia and Eritrea. He was always kind of the weaker, looser uh, third part of that, um, but very much played into that and developed strong relations with both Asmara and Addis Ababa. And that came at the expense of, of Somalia's other relations within the region. And then so actors who weren't part of that, so in particular Kenya and Djibouti, these relations very much withered. And I would expect this to be, you know, reversed. For Eritrea, it, it's a little complicated now for the new leadership. There's this whole case of, of Somali troops who were sent to train in Eritrea, who never came back home. And it's quite mysterious and very unclear. You know, Formaggio himself admitted that 5,000 of them had been sent there and, and had essentially handed over the file now to, to Hassan Sheikh. I think that'll be one of the key foreign policy sort of initiatives uh, right off the bat, kind of figuring out what happened to these troops and, and you know, whether they can come home. Um, but basically it makes, I think, a close relationship with Eritrea just politically toxic as well. Um, on, on the Ethiopia side, it's interesting because Hassan Sheikh was quite close to Addis Ababa during his first administration, uh, of course, but that was a different set of power brokers in, in Addis. That's no longer the case there. So he was close previously to um, to then Ethiopian Prime Minister Haile Mariam. Exactly, Ethiopian Prime Minister Haile Mariam, and, and essentially, you know, the uh, the TPLF, the the Tigray Party, was also uh, you know a big part of that. Um, but Ethiopia, you know, obviously is is distracted now, and it's different power brokers, and no longer plays the same role it did in Somalia as as it did you know four or five years ago, and then that's probably one of the biggest changes. So I would expect more of a, a balance in, in in those relationships and an improvement on on the Kenya side, on the Djibouti side. You know, for Djibouti, it was actually very unusual that relations with Somalia got so bad as they did. You know, typically there's almost this more brotherly sort of dynamic there. And on, on the Kenya side, again, you know, there was two periods of actually completely fractured relations. Um, there's still fundamental issues in, in that relationship. You know, we should remember Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud was, was the one that actually took this uh, maritime boundary that's disputed between them to the International Court of Justice in the first place uh, against Kenya's wishes. So still some fundamental issues within them, but I would expect the, the dynamic to be a little bit more friendly, at least to, to, to discuss some of these things. When we talk about Farmaggio's uh, relationship with Eritrean President Isaias um, and with uh, Addis Ababa, with Prime Minister Abiy, uh, you know, his proximity to those two, to the detriment of his relationships with others in the region, has that had sort of practical consequences for Somalia itself, whether it's in sort of infighting between Mogadishu and federal states? What concretely what's in effect been quite a big shift under Farmaggio towards closer relations with Asmara, with Addis. Has that had sort of concrete implications for, for Somalia itself or it's more about its foreign relations? I think there have been some implications within Somalia. And, you know, part of this was Ethiopia and Kenya were also a bit more on the same page when it came to their involvement in, in Somalia prior to some of these dynamics as well. And, and that's kind of shifted. And they're big contributors to the African Union mission, but they also both 
have forces in Somalia that are fighting al-Shabaab bilaterally as well outside the African Union mission. Yeah, absolutely. Both have have a sort of bilateral elements as, as well. And, you know, it's, it's a reflective of their security interests in, in Somalia. But, you know, we saw this kind of uh, dynamic play out when there was this dispute over the ghetto region of Jubaland a couple of years ago and where the federal government essentially intervened to break off ghetto from Jubaland and install a new administration. Well, Ethiopian you know, forces were supportive of that. You know, in Kenya's were, were backing up uh, Ahmed Madobe and Kismayo, you know, the Jubaland administration. So you saw that proxy dynamic play out, you know, the, where, where the foreign policy shifts basically play out within Somalia itself. So that's the region. And, you know, again, Farmajo, uh, as you say, his, his policy has sort of been quite bifurcated there. But it's perhaps been even more so in the, in the Gulf, uh, where his relations have proven even more contentious. So he has quite famously close ties to Qatar. Uh, Farmajo's former chief of staff, uh, Fayyad uh, Yassin, is sort of known to be particularly close to Doha. Qatar, obviously, a big supporter of, of Somalia more broadly. So, you know, in itself, that's not an issue. But that proximity has led to sort of real ties between Farmajo and the the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, particularly in the years after the Gulf cooperation crisis, when the UAE and Saudi, you know, in essence, blockaded Qatar. And the Emirates in Somalia pretty much stopped operating in Mogadishu, right, and and, and backed some of Farmajo's rivals in the member states and, and um, you know, some of his political rivals in, in the capital. So how do you think, uh, you know, does the change of government, does uh, Hassan Sheikh's arrival, what is that going to mean for for Mogadishu's relations in, uh, in, in the Gulf? Yes, Farmajo was very close to, to Doha. Um, I think Hassan Sheikh will, will continue a, a relationship, but it won't be the same way. Um, for the UAE, they were essentially frozen out under the Farmajo period. There was this uh, dispute. Um, you know, at one point there was um, some money that the UAE ambassador was bringing into the country that, that he claimed was for some security trainings that was seized at the airport, uh, which became, you know, such a flashpoint in the relationship. And essentially, you know, Abu Dhabi and, and Mogadishu, you know, they, they didn't officially break relations, but they weren't really um, talking. They weren't really engaging under Farmajo. Now, I think what we see already is basically the re-entrance of the UAE to the Somalia scene. Um, that money actually was just recently released back to the UAE. So it was given back since uh, Hassan Sheikh came to power or before then? In, in the last week. So, so the UAE had developed a relationship with Prime Minister Roble even in the last couple months before this, uh, who announced that he was going to release the money. But this was also blocked at one point by the Farmajo side. And, and so it kind of got caught up in sort of this uh, power struggle within Somalia itself. Uh, but since Hassan Sheikh took power, yes, that money was uh, officially released back to the UAE. And, and the UAE in turn basically donated it for humanitarian causes in Somalia. And so those Gulf rivalries will just sort of be less of an issue overall? Yeah, I, I would expect a bit more of a balance there. For two reasons, you know, one is what's happened also on the Gulf side of things. You know, they've had the Al-Ula declaration where they've kind of worked through some of their issues that at least removes a little bit of the intensity or the zero-sum nature when it comes to a foreign theater like uh, Somalia. And, and so I think that's helpful. Um, so that's kind of one dynamic. But the other level of that is, is, of course, you know, Somali politics and Somali politicians played into that dispute as well. You know, they were courting different sides, depending on, on you know, where, where they stood on things and, and how they could benefit from that. 
And so under Hassan Sheikh, you know, if we can take sort of this um, campaign slogan of, of a Somali at peace at, at home and abroad seriously, that would basically mean not as much as a bifurcated you know, foreign policy as we saw the past couple of years. So not basically prioritizing some relationships at the complete expense of, of, of others, but basically trying to have working relationships with, with all sides. So I think if we take both of those kind of dynamics going forward, I, I think we'd expect a, a little bit more of a balance. And uh, the U.S. Uh, President Biden has just announced that the U.S. is going to send in 450 more U.S. forces. This decision also came shortly after uh, Hassan Sheikh's election. Is that right? Yeah, but uh, not even 24 hours, maybe about 16 hours after. <laughs> and we should, what, in, interpret this as, as sort of the U.S. wanting to turn the page? I mean, after Farmaggio, that's a sort of sign of, of discontent with the previous president I and mean, what the U.S. had, had, had sanctioned, what, just visa restrictions on some unnamed government officials related to the, to the election delays, the election disputes. But what these new forces that Washington's committing... This is a sign that Washington sort of wants to, to build good relations again with, with Hassan Sheikh? I, I think it absolutely plays into that. Um, you know, even, even if officials would say the, the two events aren't linked, I, I think it's pretty clear, you know, the conclusion of the electoral process, which, you know, international partners were very frustrated about, uh, especially that this was dragging on. And all of a sudden, you know, a decision on, on the U.S. to basically uh, bolster uh, the fight against al-Shabaab again. I think the timing is a bit unfortunate uh, because it, it sends that signal that, you know, it was about getting over the political situation and now let's get back to, to counterterrorism. Um, but if you interpret that move, this return to um, some U.S. security assistance, I think that's basically a vote of confidence in, in the new administration. And, you know, in some ways, the U.S. also knows Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud. They, they worked with him before. Um, so, so I think they have high hopes there probably going forward. And so, Omar, there's this sort of idea that Farmaggio's administration hindered the fight against uh, al-Shabaab. It wasn't just that they were so busy fighting with rivals and the federal member states that they sort of abandoned the fight against al-Shabaab. But some people go further and say that actually, you know, there was sort of tacit uh, complicity, uh, collaboration between people in the Farmaggio government and, uh, and militants. I mean, what, what do you make of those arguments? You know, I mean, on, on the first side, I mean, absolutely that there was a focus more on, I think, the domestic political scene that al-Shabaab really wasn't the first priority. You know, I think that's clear from, from a number of examples, even in, in Jubaland, where you saw the focus on, on Ghetto versus, you know, countering al-Shabaab and in Galmadug as well, the focus on some other um, domestic areas rather than, than on al-Shabaab. And, and basically, infighting between federal forces, for the most part loyal to Farmaggio, and member state forces loyal to the member states' governments, the region's governments, you know, that infighting created space for, for al-Shabaab to what, seize more territory, gain more influence? Absolutely. I mean, anytime you have sort of uh, al-Shabaab's adversaries spacing off against each other rather than the movement itself, it creates um, some breathing space and some room. Uh, but the other side of that is al-Shabaab is very good about exploiting grievances as well within the system um, and, and, and leveraging that to their own purposes. So, so I do think the focus on centralization and kind of taking on some of the member states very much distracted from the struggle against al-Shabaab itself. 
On the second point about you know whether there was some degree of, of actual collusion, this is um, often rumored. Uh, it's hard to point to very specific points of evidence. It, it became such a talking point, I think, of the opposition as well. That was that was you know quite anti-Farmaggio, and you know we do see some cases of Al Shabaab infiltration deepening over the past few years. You know, this is clear, for example, in their ability to to undertake taxes in, in Mogadishu, extortive sort of taxes. Um, we saw this even in the um, recruitment of al-Shabaab defectors into some of the security forces. Now, is that reflective of active uh, collusion or is it more a sort of byproduct of, of being distracted and, and, and focusing elsewhere? You know, I think that's hard to say. Uh, but what I would say is, you know, I think the bigger factor is is the fact that there wasn't this focus against Al Shabaab, and, and the group was able to to penetrate um, more so than you know, and anything they might have gotten by through active collusion as well. You know, the fact that elites were divided and looking elsewhere that always creates room for the group to operate. And broadly speaking, where does the fight now against Al Shabaab stand? Yeah, I mean, essentially, I, I think it's more or less kind of status quo over the past few years. I mean, you see some some areas of, of advancement on on either side, but nothing that's changed, you know, the wider trajectory so much. So basically, you have Al-Shabaab very dominant in rural areas of South Central Somalia, you know, the vast majority of them. Uh, you have the government hunkered down in urban locations. The change has been this Al-Shabaab sort of shadow infiltration of those urban locations as well. Um, you have some territories which are contested and kind of switch hands, but I think we could also point over the past few years to greater Al-Shabaab influence in, in an area like Galmudug, where they've actually been able to, to expand a little bit of their operating presence, and in the Hirshabeli area as, as well. Um, so those are kind of the, the wider contours, but essentially, you know, it's kind of been a, a status quo where, where there hasn't been much significant movement on, on either side, but especially on the government side. I guess one way of, of thinking about where the fight against al-Shabaab is now, you know, that the Formaggio years uh, really played into al-Shabaab's hands. Now there's a new administration, maybe one that's going to be less divisive, uh, there's going to be fewer uh, rifts among Somali political elites. Now we can, in essence, take the fight to al-Shabaab and uh, roll back some of its gains. And the extra U.S. forces are a symbol of that way of thinking. But presumably there's a danger to that too. It would be wrong to pin the stalemate in the fight against al-Shabaab just on Farmajo. There were few signs even before Farmajo that al-Shabaab would ever be defeated. Um, you know, it remains, it was entrenched in parts of Somalia even before then. And so presumably there's a sort of danger in thinking that with the change of administration, you know, the, the sort of fundamental dynamics of the conflict will also change. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's right, that we need to point out that there's a wider through line here that goes beyond you know, um, recent politics, of course, the centralization drive, and then even just the prolonged election, you know, both of those were very distracting elements that I think uh, benefited Al-Shabaab. But the wider picture is, you know, one on Al-Shabaab's side where there's sort of an internal organizational logic that's not matched by its adversaries. And, you know, if we zoom out a bit further, you know, this fight has been going on for 15 years now. Um, and Al-Shabaab's always been more adaptable than the government and, and its allies. 
And, you know, I think this is a key point for the Hassan Sheikh uh, Mahmoud administration, that the threat they're dealing with al-Shabaab, you know, is quite different than the one of five years ago. You know, it is one that's even more of a embedded asymmetric actor that that, you know, conventional military force, you know, is not going to defeat. And, you know, I think I can see a situation where maybe the balance, you know, is, is clawed back a little bit. But I, I don't see how that resolves the conflict that's been going on. For, for 15 years, because I think you can argue the federal government itself is in a much stronger position than it was 10 years ago. You know, it does have some institutions. It does have a, a, a security uh, sector, you know, that that's in a better place than it was 10 years ago. Uh, but I think I'd be hard pressed to say that the war is any closer to a conclusion than it was 10 years ago. And you have a, another dynamic at the same time, which is that the African Union force, what was Amazon, has now sort of rehatted. Um, and its mandate has been extended. But clearly, to some degree, patience is waning among Europeans that basically pay for the, for the, for the African Union force. And you know, how long the force will remain in place is unclear. And yet, the African Union troops are clearly a big part of the Somali government's ability to hold on to towns and, uh, and, and, and cities. So you also have that clock ticking on how long that regional force is going to be there for. Yeah, I mean, that's another part of the, the puzzle. There's been um, the Amazon force that was there previously that's now called ATMIS, the African Union Transition Mission, um, you know, basically preserves a, a status quo, but wasn't making a lot of new progress. It wasn't, it wasn't taking on al-Shabaab in the same way uh, as it was earlier in its tenure. And so there's uh, discontent about continuing to sort of pay for it in a very expensive status quo, especially on behalf of some of the, the European countries. And so you have now this transition plan, which marks out basically four phases through the end of 2024, um, where the, the mission is supposed to withdraw completely and hand over the fight to Somali security forces. Now, you know, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone, including the diplomats who've been working on this, that would say these are not very ambitious timelines and that all of this will happen within that frame. Um, but the fact is that there is sort of this plan. And I think that's, you know, uh, just signal of, of, of the wider dynamic around international support to, to Somalia. You know, if, if you, you know, zoom out a bit, you know, I think the high watermark has probably been, been crossed there. Just year after year, you know, dynamics get uh, a little bit um, or more fatigued when it comes to Somalia. You know, other priorities are popping up more and more each year. And, and so to expect, you know, maybe the same level of international attention and, and support that Somalia had, you know, 10 years ago today, I think is just uh, unrealistic. And so you have, again, this sort of resilient, entrenched insurgency uh, that is unlikely to be defeated by military means alone. So the other option is exploring whether there's any option for talking to al-Shabaab's leaders or, or, or parts of the group. So we have a, this, uh, this big report coming out uh, over the next couple of weeks, which looks at how uh, Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud's government might sort of test the waters to see what's feasible. So I'd like to spend the rest of the, of the episode sort of talking about what that might look like and, and thinking through in particular some of the, the challenges. So there has been a, a history over the past decade of efforts to engage Shabab to talk to either its leaders or to use dialogue to pull away lower level commanders or other parts of the movement. Do you want to say something about 
the sort of history of that engagement and, and why previous efforts have, for the most part, failed? Yeah, so I mean, I mean, we do have this report coming out looking at basically the prospects and challenges of, of engagement with Al-Shabaab because, you know, as, as you mentioned, Richard, we don't see you know, a military defeat basically being in, in the cards of the organization. Um, but of course, there are, you know, a number of, of significant hurdles here. And, you know, one is that there is a history of, of previous engagement here. Some of that's uh, happened under the previous presidents, including Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud himself. That hasn't really born significant fruit. There was a very serious attempt to engage al-Shabaab's leadership under Sheikh Sharif Ahmed, who was the president before Hassan Sheikh Mahmoud, around 2009. At that time, al-Shabaab's leadership basically showed no interest in, in really moderating their positions or really coming to any sort of agreement. And, and, so, and so that failed. And since then, basically the tracks were, were a little different. You know, there's been a focus on, on defection-based uh, engagement. So reaching out to members of the group that, you know, might not be fully on the same page with court leadership and engaging with them. And, and basically what's that done? It's, it's drawn out a few key members from the group. So there's been some, some successes in that. Mukhtar Robo, for example, who was one of Shabab's founders that, that's been pulled out of the, of the movement, or even uh, Sheikh Tahir Awais, who's this very important um, Islamist figure in, in, in Somali politics, you know, predating al-Shabaab as well, uh, but then was also associated with the movement for a little bit. So there have been some successes on that front, um, but I think what we would argue uh, again there is that that hasn't really shifted the wider tenor of the war as well. You know, you've had tactical su successes there, but not a strategic success. You know, at times there's been some other issues, you know, in terms of whether there was a mismatch in terms of, of local pursuit of, of an engagement track. The international community hasn't been as, as ready to support when some movements, uh, dynamics have been moving on the ground. And it, there's been at times, you know, where it's been questionable, even, you know, who um, was being engaged on the Shabab side, you know, whether they actually represented top leadership. So, so there is a bit of a history here. But what we would argue is there hasn't been sort of this, you know, organization-wide dynamic to kind of sit down and, and talk through um, the future of, of this conflict. You know, I think that's what hasn't been done for, for a while. It's been more predicated on maybe the, the surrender approach or, or other sorts of dynamics. So obviously one big challenge to this is al-Shabaab itself. I mean, as you say, in 2009, when there were some efforts, I mean, this was some time ago, but when there were some efforts to, to sort of reach out to, to the leadership, it showed very little sign of, of interest, although it was prepared to make the sort of compromises that it would need to to enter Somali politics. Uh, first of all, al-Shabaab al is, is an al-Qaeda affiliate, and we'll talk about what that means in practice. But it's also a group that wants to impose its vision of its interpretation of Sharia, of Islamic law on Somalia, wants to, to hold power to, to, to be able to impose this vision. Um, and... In areas it controls, although, you know, it's been quite sort of tactical in forming alliances, in backing sort of weaker parties in conflicts, in in some cases being quite pragmatic in its local relations. Broadly speaking, it doesn't show much sign that it's prepared to compromise in its bigger vision of what it wants. But do you think there's more space than some of its public statements suggest? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, an important point, um, and it's very clear, you know, publicly Al-Shabaab hasn't commented much on this idea of engagement with the government, but when they have, you know, they have shot it down 
um, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, one, they, they've never considered this government legitimate. Um, you know, secondly, they, they've kind of termed engagement also as, as you know, a means of, of dividing them and, and dividing the group as well. I think the other thing to look at is Al-Shabaab's track record and whether it's really demonstrated a dynamic where it can, you know, be comfortable without having a monopoly on governance in, in an area under its control. And so I think that's difficult to see as well. You know, it's not to say that there are times, though, that Al-Shabaab does have to adjust to the local community and, and kind of work with them and, and maybe even moderate at a very granular level. Uh, but at the same time, you know, uh, it's hard pressed to find examples where it didn't have a monopoly. Um, but privately, you know, I do think there are, you know, some indications that um, the door might be slightly more ajar. You know, some of this comes from from conversations we've had through the course of this research with, you know, high level individuals, both on, on the government side, but also on, on uh, you know, sort of the diplomatic front in terms of some of the indications they've been getting on, on behalf of um, Al-Shabaab as well. And, and so I think there's something maybe there worth exploring. And, and so what we would argue is, is a need to sort of test that out to see really if there is something that uh, can, can be pulled on there or, you know, could, could basically be the start of some sort of track. So then, Omar, there's also, of course, the, the, the foreign links. So first, the Al-Qaeda affiliation, I think what was announced in 2012, although may have even predated that formal announcement. So in principle, that means that the group shares Al-Qaeda's global goals, which obviously pose a big challenge to any dialogue. There's a lot of stigma attached to the Al-Qaeda link. It's also quite difficult to sort of in practice break the Pledge of Allegiance between uh, Abu Baida, the current uh, al-Shabaab leader, and uh, Ayman al-Zawahri, the, the, the al-Qaeda leader. And we talked about this a little bit last week with Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, the group in northwest Syria that has done that, but it's not easy. Um, but the transnational element goes beyond al-Qaeda, right? I mean, in reality, pretty much all of al-Shabaab's external operations, its attacks outside Somalia, pretty much all of them are focused on the region, mostly on troop contributors to the African Union mission. So there's generally a lot of resistance in regional capitals to any notion of engaging al-Shabaab. And it's partly sort of fury at those attacks. But it's also that Nairobi, Addis, Kampala, the other regional capitals, they don't want an Islamist militant group holding or sharing power in Mogadishu, especially not a group that has these sort of pan-Somali aspirations. So in principle, aiming to unite areas where Somalis live, including parts of neighbouring countries. So, Omar, do you want to say something about some of these sort of transnational challenges? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a concern, um, but basically it comes to the question of, you know, what Al-Shabaab really is at, at its core. And there's a couple different frames the organization operates in. You know, one is this sort of South Central Somalia frame where it is most dominant, um, but it also pays, you know, uh, adherence to this greater Somalia logic, which is this idea that all Somali areas in, in the Horn should be kind of under one administration. You know, Al-Shabaab's not the first organization to, to appeal to this, but this basically would mean, you know, uh, parts of Kenya and in Ethiopia, you know, in, in addition to even Djibouti and, and, and um, Somaliland, um, would basically fall under, you know, one sort of administration. Um, but of course, they go beyond that within East Africa to paint themselves as the defender of East Africa's Muslims. And, and we see this, you know, in, in terms of regional recruitment. Kenya, Tanzania, for example, in, in, in particular. Um, and then there's the global frame where they play themselves into the Al-Qaeda um, uh, affiliate status. 
the relationship with Al-Qaeda in particular, you know, it seems to be more symbolic than, than anything. Um, you know, it, in terms of what Al-Shabaab is, it's, it's locus, it's, 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 its ability to uh, recruit in Somalia, to generate financing, to take on the government, you know, a lot of that, you know, almost all of that is basically locally driven. It doesn't seem to have that much to do with the Al-Qaeda relationship. You know, rather where the relationship with Al-Qaeda is important is, I think, in, in some of the symbolic benefits that a group like Al-Shabaab gets from this. And that might be, one, the relationship not with Al-Qaeda core, but with some of the affiliates. You know, Al-Qaeda uh, in, in Yemen, I think, is, is, is one of those. Um, but also then maybe boosts Al-Shabaab regional recruitment practice because it can present itself as the Al-Qaeda affiliate within East Africa. So for like-minded individuals within the region to, to come to Somalia and, and fight on their behalf. Um, but again, you know, it's not to say that any of this is sort of central to sustaining the movement. So, so I think it is a challenge. It's definitely one um, Somalia's neighbors would have a very significant challenge in, in terms of envisioning any sort of pathway towards al-Shabaab engagement as well because of this al-Qaeda affiliation. Um, but again, I think what we would say is, is because it's not so central to the movement, is that something that could also be explored through the possibilities of, of engagement rather than a dynamic that, that precludes it? So, you know, rather than being a precondition, is this something to explore through discussion um, to see, you know, just how important it is and, and whether there's some sort of means to get around that? And what do we know, Omar, about uh, about Abu Beda, uh, who's been, you know, as we, as we mentioned, leader of al-Shabaab for some years? He's not someone who has a lot of foreign experience. I mean, he didn't fight in Afghanistan like uh, like Gordani, uh, for, for example, but he was very quick to sort of pledge allegiance to uh, to Zawahiri when Gaddafi died. Seems to have a pretty tight grip on the movement. Is that, um, you know, is that fair? So Abu Ubaidah is a reclusive figure. He, he doesn't appear much in, in the media. He wasn't that well known when he, when he took over um, in 2014 either. Uh, he does not have sort of the international experience side of things, uh, which, which was different from, you know, uh, the previous Al-Shabaab leader, uh, Gaddafi as well. Right? He's, he's a much more locally kind of driven uh, individual. So, so I, I don't think we know, you know, too much about his personal views. Um, but what I would say is from Al-Shabaab, you know, it's clearly not a monolithic organization. You know, I think we've seen differences of opinion in, in the past, but I do think it's a centralized one in, in the sense that um, there is sort of a, a common line and, and it's a bit risky if you're in the organization to kind of step out from that common line. You know, that, that was reflected in, in the purges we saw both in 2013 and, and 15. You know, one about internal leadership and in 2015 about uh, outreach to join the Islamic State. Very high level figures within the movement were basically purged, hunted down and even killed. Um, and, and so it kind of showed that, you know, there, there is this mechanism in place within the movement to sort of maintain uh, a centralized stance, maintain a hierarchy, even if the organization is made up of of, of other sort of diverse uh, opinions and backgrounds. Um, and, and so that's kind of one reason why we argue if you are to engage, you know, that should happen at, at the highest level of, of leadership, because otherwise I think you're talking about, you know, just kind of peeling away and, and, and dynamics that we've seen in the past that didn't really change the, the overall trajectory of the war. So there's the challenges on the Al-Shabaab side, but there's also challenges on the government side, even with a, a new government that's potentially less divisive. Than Farmajo's government, there is still a lot of political jockeying among 
Somali political elites between Mogadishu and the regions, which presumably any outreach to al-Shabaab is going to run into. And let's say there were prospects of broader political talks involving al-Shabaab. Presumably, Somali elites are going to see this through the lens of their own political rivalry, their own access to power, their own access to resources, um, and are going to distrust whoever is leading these outreach efforts. They're going to view those as, as potentially being uh, instrumentalized. How do you think then, you know, the prospect of talks fits into what is a very fractious even with a new government, a very fractious Somali political scene? Yeah, I mean, I think this is another key challenge, and this is a question we get all the time, that um, if there's some sort of reconciliation path with al-Shabaab, you know, where does that fit in the wider spectrum of reconciliation in, in, in Somalia? You know, we talk about a number of things that need to happen. You know, I mean, one, the federal government, federal member state relationship, but dynamics within member states, you know, at the community level as, as well. And so introducing this can be uh, a little complicated within that because, you know, for example, different uh, member states view the threat of al-Shabaab quite differently. You know, we talked to leaders from all of them and the way they see the future of, of the war against al-Shabaab is very reflective in terms of how much of a threat al-Shabaab is to them right now. So those that feel more threatened are kind of willing to engage on alternative paths a bit more than those who feel they can handle the situation themselves. So Omar, just to clarify, I mean, it's that way around. The people that are facing the most violence from al-Shabaab are those that are most prepared to envisage talking to them and those that are largely unaffected, that, that are less interested. You could imagine that it would be the opposite, right? That those that were involved in the fiercest fighting with al-Shabaab were the least inclined to, toward talks. Yeah, but, uh, you know, I think broadly we could generalize in that sort of sense because those that are affected by al-Shabaab on, on a daily basis, affected by the conflict are more interested in, in having some uh, stability. It's their daily lives that are disrupted by, by this conflict. And those that are a bit more removed um, have less incentive to really to seek that, that level of stability because they can see themselves kind of getting on um, right now okay. Um, so, so I think that's, that's a key dynamic that, you know, Al-Shabaab affects different communities, different layers uh, of the federal system in Somalia differently. You know, that, that also plays, of course, into you know, clan politics within Somalia as well. You know, the group says it's, it's, it's above clan. And uh, if you look at its leadership, though, a lot of it is Hawiye, one of the, one of the dominant clan families in, in Somalia. Um, so, so it plays into these different sort of dynamics. There's communities that have, as, as you mentioned, also fought against al-Shabaab that uh, because they have fought against the group, also maybe a bit more um, aggrieved as well. So some militias like uh, an al-Sunnah wal-Jama, which is this sort of uh, Sufi uh, militia in central Somalia that's actually had some success in warding off uh, Shabab. Um, and, and so I think there's, there's a wider support for stability and, and for kind of ending the war. But in terms of the way to go about it, there, there is a significant difference of, of opinion. And there's you know, many other um, ongoing reconciliation processes that do need to happen in, in Somalia. But I think our wider point here is, is the formula in, in Somalia has always kind of been you need to do X process to get to Y to get to Z, if Z is, you know, al-Shabaab reconciliation. And so it's kind of been a bit linear. And, and the problem is, you know, that first step never fully happens or doesn't happen, you know, properly. And so you never get to the next step and you never get to, to the following step. And, and so I think following that sort of track puts this in, in a much more long term view that it's hard to see, you know, the war getting resolved in, 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 in the near 
future. And, and I think what we'd rather say is, is you know, there's a multiple things that need to be happening at, at once. You know, just because you're working on Z doesn't mean you can't also be working on, on X um, at the same time. Right. So you have this sort of argument that you have to fix all the problems among elites. You have a new constitution, you know, work out the federal structure. And only then can you think about talks with al-Shabaab. I mean, it's a bit like the argument that, you know, you need to just push a bit longer militarily you know, and then negotiate from a position of strength once you've beaten uh, al-Shabaab back a bit. You know, the difficulty, of course, is that, you know, it's not clear at that moment, sort of when other Somalis are fully reconciled, the Somali security forces have the upper hand. It's not clear that moment is going to ever come, right? I mean, if the last few years are anything to go by, I mean, correct me if this is wrong, but it's kind of also as plausible things move in the uh, in the other direction. So, you know, as, as you say, Omar, it seems to make more sense to at least explore the opportunity of whether, you know, there might be some space for compromise. And again, we're not talking about stopping fighting al-Shabaab or stopping trying to fix Somalia's other challenges, um, particularly the sort of Mogadishu federal-state relations, but rather that testing the waters with al-Shabaab sort of shouldn't wait for those. They shouldn't be held hostage to those. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a good point to emphasize that, um, you, know, you know, we're not even necessarily saying, you know, the time is, is, is right to, to basically tomorrow to be sitting down with al-Shabaab's leadership and, and figure out, you know, some sort of uh, grand compromise, you know. I think this is a, a very long-term process, a, a non-linear process. Um, but I think what we are saying is there is an important, um, you know, dynamic here where, you know, conflicts are typically resolved at the negotiating table that it uh, does appear that a military defeat of al-Shabaab is, is going to be impossible. Um, and, and so should we be doing more to get towards that table? And you talked about some of the groups that might fear al-Shabaab being brought into politics in Somalia, but presumably there's another, another big constituency that, that we didn't talk about yet. You know, a constituency that, that doesn't necessarily want to live under al-Shabaab's vision of Islamist rule, you know, whether that's uh, women in parts of the country, for, for example, or whether it's others that have enjoyed sort of relative freedoms in parts of, of the country that they might fear would, would sort of disappear were al-Shabaab to have more of a say in Somali politics. Yeah, and, and I think this is uh, another point worth, worth stressing that when we do bring up this idea of engagement with Shabab, you know, a lot of people do kind of stiffen their back. And I think the, the, the point to stress here is that, you know, this is about uh, a, a negotiation. This isn't about basically, you know, um, giving the country over to, to Shabab about kind of surrendering to their ideology. You know, it basically takes two to sort of tango. It's about figuring out, is there a way to end this war um, um, through some aspect of negotiated settlement, which involves compromise on both sides. If you don't have that on behalf of one side, which is what happened about you know 10 plus years ago, uh, it doesn't work and, and, and it won't work. And it might not work the first time again either, but it lays the groundwork maybe for future processes. The idea of, of uh, engaging Shabab is quite likely to generate quite fierce resistance in, in the region, uh, in Kenya and in Ethiopia in particular. But how's your, I mean, you've talked to quite a few Western officials uh, about this. I mean, on the one hand, Europeans are, uh, you know, clearly getting impatient with the African Union mission. But on the other, there's obviously going to be you know, a lot of disquiet about the idea of, you know, trying to engage uh, an al-Qaeda-linked uh, Islamist uh, militant group 
in political talks, perhaps all the more so after what happened in, in Afghanistan with the Taliban takeover and some of the things that the Taliban have done since they seized power. How have people in Western capitals generally reacted uh, to, 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 to the idea? Yeah, we, we did a bit of a tour the last couple of weeks, uh, visiting Washington, D.C., New York, London, and Brussels as well to kind of gauge some of the reactions. You know, I think at, at the surface, there was a lot of frustration with, um, you know, Somalia and, and kind of uh, the various policies towards Somalia over the, over the past couple of years. You know, part of that is also a reflection of, of the election dynamic that really just um, fatigued donors even more so and, and went on ahead of time. Um, and, and so, you know, there is that strong sense of frustration and fatigue when it comes to Somalia. And that leads to maybe some receptiveness to new ideas. I think there's also some healthy skepticism, um, a lot of discussion on, on the modalities or the timing, how, how it would work, you know, what we would have to kind of work through. Um, but to me, you know, what, what I think that kind of signals is, is, is you know, uh, people are looking for new sort of ideas. I think the U.S. and the EU are both kind of doing strategic reviews on their Somalia policy. You know, there isn't really a coherent sort of long-term vision. A lot of the moves are more focused on, on the short term and kind of assuming, you know, that eventually gets way to sort of a long-term path of, of Somali stability. Um, and, and you can see, you know, even the discussions around uh, the African Union force um, within that, you know, you have a, a short-term sort of plan now uh, for their withdrawal over the next couple of years, but it's, it's highly dependent on conditions on the ground. Um, and it's very unclear, you know, what happens, um, you know, next or when you get to those points as, as well. So with all this in mind, what sort of options does the new government have to, you know, as you described, sort of test the water, see if it can establish lines of communication and explore with Shabab's leadership, you know, whether there is some space for, 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 for getting to, 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 to talks? Yeah, I mean, essentially, we argue that, uh, you know, it might be a good time for, you know, a new government to more seriously consider uh, political engagement as a tool um, to bring the war to a close in, in, in Somalia. I, again, you know, not necessarily saying that the time is exactly right at this moment or that, you know, uh, pulling back from sort of the military efforts or other efforts that seek to weaken al-Shabaab or that this would be something quick, but, but um, that this is something to sort of think about and, and maybe start laying out some of the groundwork on how this would proceed. And so I think there's two areas we, we focus on. One is basically, you know, the, the testing the waters. Uh, because I think there's a lot of speculation around, you know, what uh, you know, Al-Shabaab is or wants and, and its leadership and, and sort of those dynamics. There's a couple options on, on how to do that from a new administration. Um, you know, uh, we, we talk about, you know, maybe there's a special envoy appointed um, very discreetly as well that, that would kind of explore uh, with the leadership, you know, has the benefit of, of speaking on behalf of the government. Um, uh, within that, you know, there, there's an idea that you could have basically a committee, you know, maybe some drawn from, from the business community, the, you know, some clan elders, some from the religious community, um, those that have the ability to basically reach out to, to Shabab's leadership as well. You know, maybe a, a grouping of them can kind of um, deliver a message. Um, you know, you could have a third party option as well. Um, you know, the, an actor like like the UN, or we've seen some other countries uh, that that are interested. I think it's better maybe not to go the bilateral country route because they come with some of their own 
baggage as well, but more an international organization. Um, so, so an actor like the UN that could be seen in a neutral route, you know, if this, if they saw this as part of their mandate, if they were emboldened, that that could undertake this. But you know, the the broader point being um, the need for some sort of uh, testing the waters and and, and uh, outreach um, and and the modalities around that, you know, could could happen a, a variety of ways. Omar, what do you make of the argument that there isn't much incentive right now for al-Shabaab itself to, to, to talk, that its leaders believe that time is on its side, that it gains more right now from fighting than it can through dialogue, and, and, that, and like the Taliban in Afghanistan, it just sort of has to wait out foreign forces? I think this is one of the, the questions we get quite a bit as well. You know, what would al-Shabaab's interests be to, to engage, or why would they have any, any sort of um, incentive right now. Uh, but I think there's a need to sort of make an argument to the leadership of, of the movement that it, it would be in their interest. There's a couple points to, to reinforce here. You know, the first one is is we do talk about a uh, stalemate, or we do talk about how difficult it'll be to defeat al-Shabaab as well. I, I think you can make that reverse argument also that, you know, what al-Shabaab wants is full domination of, of Somalia at a, at a, at a minimum. Um, that, you know, uh, uh, the the scenario where they emerge, you know, um, in full control of, of Somalia for an extended period of time is, is very unlikely um, because you've seen in Somalia's history, anytime uh, an Islamist actor like an Shabaab kind of gets a bit too much power, you've always seen some sort of intervention. So even if the domestic centers of opposition are overrun, uh, we've seen regional intervention, also, also sort of international. You know, I think... Um, you could put a couple other points here. You know, one is that, you know, war does bring fatigue. And, and I think, you know, from, from some of the conversations we've had with, with both the recent defectors or even low-level members of, of the movement, you know, there is a sense that war fatigue does affect al-Shabaab as well um, and that this can be, um, you know, uh, another route to sort of consider. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, the, another point to, to make here is that to tell Shabab itself is that, you know, they're not necessarily a fully popular movement in, in Somalia. Omar, isn't that putting it mildly that Shabab is not fully popular? I mean, they're deeply unpopular in parts of the country, right? I mean, it's not just in the capital, which, you know, where terrorist attacks, you know, provoke you know, enormous anger, um, but also even in rural areas. I mean, sure, they provide some things that people appreciate, so sort of enforced dispute resolution, some basic law and order in some places, but they're also, you know, very violent, repressive. You know, and it's against not to say that the government is popular in, in those rural areas where al-Shabaab is influential, but al-Shabaab itself also inspires a lot of hostility, and, you know, not just in the capital and, and areas outside of those it controls. It's true that, you know, we see these pockets of sort of community resistance against Shabab. And, and I think basically the, the formula here is, you know, Shabab does offer some services uh, to these populations. You know, we haven't uh, talked about that as much um, on this episode, but I think we have in the past in terms of some of uh, maybe the justice they provide or other sorts of, of dynamics that are attractive to sort of local populations. But Al-Shabaab also does demand a lot. You know, um, their, their, their rhetoric is, is quite extreme. The way they go about implementing is, is extreme. I mean, they demand, you know, manpower and, and financing from the local population as well. So there are um, times where, you know, people do turn to, to the movement, um, but there are, you know, plenty of times where people are put off by it as well. And, and so striking that balance has been hard, you know, and it's not to say that the federal government hasn't always been able to be there to be a credible alternative either. That's, that's part of the the calculation is, as well. But yes, I mean, Al-Shabaab very much does struggle with this aspect uh, as, as well. 
one other argument I, I'd make is is if Shabab does feel like it's in a, in a strong position, you know, that's actually typically a good time to come into a negotiated process. I, I think you know history is is filled with actors who who felt strong and didn't negotiate only to regret it later on. So so if the group does feel like they're in a in a good position, that actually also makes sense um, within that. So Omar, maybe let me just ask one more question before we close. Something that we we hear sometimes from from Western officials in particular, that a, a sort of danger of trying to engage al-Shabaab uh, is that the group might use a political process, might use talks to sort of stimulate or encourage the exit of uh, of foreign forces, in this case of Amazon, before then sort of seizing the country, I mean, a little bit like the, the, the Taliban did. That That's a danger, and you know, as a result, uh, you really can't trust a group like that. The danger of, of it manipulating some sort of political process is too great. I mean, what, what do you say about that danger? Well, I think that's definitely a risk, but it's one that I would say, you know, is better to explore now rather than the, the closer you do get to actually that withdrawal. You know, at some level, that is one of Al-Shabaab's core demands, the removal of foreign forces in Somalia. And they kind of see that happening with the Atmos plan in any case. But there's nothing uh, kind of being extracted on their side in order to get there. And, and so that's where, you know, we'd argue that the wider exit strategy for an Atmos is not just, the, you know, the development of, of the Somali security forces. And, you know, I think the lesson from Afghanistan for all its kind of differences is that, you know, the, there was basically a, an exit strategy sort of negotiated. And then, you know, maybe the, the governance sides were supposed to kind of follow from that. And, you know, would argue here we should kind of reverse that trajectory and more condition the uh, exit of, of the foreign troops on, you know, some specific compromises on the behalf of El Shabaab to see if that is uh, possible. I think that needs to be explored. Omar, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on... Somalia. Uh, look out for that big report that we've talked about in depth today over the coming weeks. All that's on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, of course, Sam Mednick, Kevin Murphy, Finn Johnson. And thanks as ever to all our listeners. Please do get in touch. You can write to me directly at what at crisisgroup.org or use our general address podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions or comments, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. And I very much hope you'll join us again next week. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. 
And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.